Hello everyone, and welcome to TransAsia and the World. I'm Joy. And I'm Galen. And today we'll be speaking with Dr. William Noseworthy, recent PhD graduate from the History Department of UW-Madison. So, recently, Billy gave TransAsia Pod one of his talks, comparing two important historical examples of political violence from Indonesia and Cambodia, respectively. Today we are going to share some snippets of that talk with you, our audience, but we also get to have Billy with us in the studio today. So today our topic is political violence, and Billy will help us take a look specifically at genocide in Southeast Asia. So Galem, do you want to start off by asking Billy the question? Yeah, thanks Billy for joining us. One of my big questions before we get into the cases that you laid out in your talk uh, in Southeast Asia was this word genocide. Like, yeah. where's this word come from? You know, for p most Western people, we think immediately of the Holocaust. But, you know, you're bringing it into a more global understanding of this word. So, yeah, where's this word come from? And why is it so controversial to apply it to specific cases? And who has the power to define this word? <laughs> Those are really big questions. Okay. <laughs> so... I'll start with the with the the first most simple. Where does it come from? Right, your intuition is absolutely correct. Uh, the context of the word genocide itself comes out of the historical context of the Holocaust. Uh, there's a scholar Lemkin who's from Poland, who is seeking to define the experience of uh, specifically Jews in the Ashkenazi population in Eastern Europe during the Holocaust and reflect upon. Uh, how justice might be brought to that experience. And he defines genocide as a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the groups themselves. So Lemkin himself was also a historian. Uh, so he looked at historical cases, not just the Ashkenazi case, but also the Armenian genocide in Turkey. Incidentally, the Turkish government still denies is an actual mm. genocide, which brings up the question of who defines the term, Yeah, right? So, so most typically, the, the, the term itself is defined by the United Nations Genocide Convention, which is signed in 1948. The convention defines genocide under Article 2 as any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, uh, ethnic, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, which is a mm. very important uh, consideration, and then also forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, so an aspect of uh, forced assimilation. Uh, it's important to note that the United States didn't actually sign the convention. Oh, I see. <laughs> for four decades. <laughs> uh, and part of this argument was that the, the United States' uh, specific fight against communism would be brought to trial in the United Nations and that this would be used to prevent the fight against communism, hmm. which was necessary. And so this was part of the argument in Congress, although uh, the United States Congress pushes to sign the convention in the 1980s. But there's another important factor to this is there's no statute of limitations mm. 
on the Genocide mm. Convention. Um, so this is a, a living and breathing legislation, but it's one that's intimately tied to history. So genocide is almost like a legal term. It, it is. With it's a, it, legal consequences. Yeah, yeah. Very, very real legal consequences. Mm. But also, essentially, every single case, and this is not often talked about, is discussed in terms of historical relations of the groups involved as well. So mm. this is why history is so important in these cases. Um, and, and this is why I think the Indonesian case is so interesting because we actually have uh, new breaking evidence linking the United States uh, in terms of awareness of the scale of violence that was just released, uh, declassified this past year. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, so the case itself, U.S. complicity in the Indonesian genocide. Historians of Southeast Asia have known about this for decades, basically since 1965 and 66. There were already scholars who were on the ground in Indonesia who were aware that the United States had been funding uh, the Indonesian military and that the scale of violence was massive. And it was not clear exactly how many had died in the two-year period, but it was clear that it was... Uh, a crime that should be looked at in terms of crimes against humanity and possibly genocide. And so what happened recently was there are U.S. embassy cables that confirmed that it was not only the covert operations that were aware of the scale of the violence, but it was also the U.S. embassy staff that was intimately aware of the scale of the violence and U.S. involvement uh, straight from the get-go. So this is both a living and also partially forgotten and then also... Uh, in some ways, indoctrinated history in both Indonesia and the United States that we're dealing with. So why did you decide to compare Indonesia with Cambodia? I have a very, <laughs> a very simple answer for that and then a, a more complicated one. We'll start with the simple one then. <laughs> so the simple one is just uh, communism, anti-communism. I wanted to shed the idea straight from the get-go that uh, the so-called Cold War period, which is already a misnomer itself in terms of Southeast Asian history, is about morality, right? Mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's about anti-U.S. imperialism, then uh, the, the Khmer Rouge position can be supported and justified. If it's about the fight against the global fight against this hegemony or pending hegemony of communism, then the U.S. position in Indonesia can be justified. And so I wanted to shed those myths straight from the get-go, right? So this is, this is not about uh, who was right and, and who was wrong. Um, this is not about any, any of those sort of mucky uh, details and moralizations. This is mm -hmm. about getting the facts about what happened out on the table. Uh, so that's the simple hit. Could you say what your case or maybe uh, like uh, cases of genocide in Asia in, in general have to add to the global understanding of genocide? Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a few things. I think that the first is that in some ways, because both East and Southeast and Central also, um, and South Asia were so embroiled in this mid-century politics that's commonly framed in terms mm -hmm. of the Cold War, that this is actually a way that specifically the cases in Asia move this 
push to create a more global and inclusive community forward, right? So that there's mm -hmm. a push beyond that sort of divisive politics in considering these cases. So I think that's one of the sort of big picture contributions. That argument could be made for other regions. I'm aware can of Can you that. say what you mean, pushing beyond divisive politics? Yeah, I think if I consider the case of Cambodia by itself, Yeah. right? I think it's very easy for people, uh, politicians, historians, to look at that case and say, okay, U.S. intervention in Southeast Asia was justified, mm. right? Yeah. And so that becomes a point of tension then for the communities and the governments that maybe consider the U.S. intervention in Southeast Asia or Vietnam, the government of Vietnam, for example, maybe not so justified, right? And that's part of the, the sort of national ethos. I just think it, it's a way to push for this more nuanced understanding. It focuses the history and the politics more in terms of discussion and then hopefully in, in long term uh, in terms of maybe understanding, agreement, less focus on militarization, mm -hmm. perhaps, in the way that more divisive politics, more divisive interpretations can justify increased militarization. Before we get into a discussion about this genocide that took place in Indonesia, I want, Billy, for you to give a little bit of an overview about what was happening in the country during this moment. Give us a little time and place. What is, are the dates of the violence that you're going to describe? What's really kind of going on in Indonesia and the world in that moment? Yeah, basically the, the gist is this. Um, throughout Indonesian independence, we have an incredibly important figure, Sukarno, who is the leader of Indonesian nationalism, um, he's a centrist figure. He is a key figure in the founding of the non-aligned movement. Mm -hmm. So an important figure in setting uh, middle ground politics in the middle of the 20th century as a priority. So his concept of how to hold Indonesia together in the 1960s, which is on the brink of civil war, mm -hmm. is guided democracy. Um, now, this is <clears throat> perhaps one of his most fatal errors. <laughs> How so? <laughs> because guided democracy is like democracy without the democracy. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, so, <laughs> so, as it would turn out. So there is a, an important group, the, the Communist Party of Indonesia, who has been quite potent and powerful, in different periods in the 20th century. So they are growing in membership over the course of the, the middle of the 1950s and 1960s. It looks like they're growing in influence. And Sukarno's answer is to say, okay, well, we're going to pacify this situation, not in the military sense. It looks like he's fainting towards a process that I would term, and I haven't published anything about this yet, but I think it's an interesting idea. I would term it, quote, parliamentary pacification. So basically, you take the opposition uh, militias and you grant them access to forms of democratic representation, except the PKI aren't actually allowed to have any form of formal representation in parliament. 
Hmm. And the PKI is the communist group? Yes. Okay. Because of this guided democracy platform, which is supposed to have representation of the communist stance, the nationalist stance in, in the center, and then also right-wing religious political groups, both Muslims and Christians, being represented. So the nationalists and uh, the, the religious groups get represented in the national politics, but uh, the far left-wing, the communists, do not. And increasingly, individuals who are not communist are labeled as communist, which actually tends to strengthen the communist position. At the same time, in the right wing of the Indonesian military, there's a powerful general, Suharto, who is increasingly taking power, and he criticizes Sukarno for essentially playing to the communists. Mm. And, and being so this soft being on so being soft on communism and perhaps even being communist himself, right? Mm. So uh, in some ways, this uh, becomes the defeat uh, of Sukarno's position. There is a, I still think it's a murky coup and countered coup. Essentially, Suharto accuses members of the military of plotting a coup as communists. Whether or not they ever actually were communists is still not clear. All the internal documents are only from the, like, the military, right? So they mm. could easily be doctored. The individuals who are involved are arrested and executed, so they have no defense against their accusations, right? So mm -hmm. there's still, an, we only have one side of that story, and that's yeah. there was a communist coup, and therefore we need a counter coup and a purge. Mm. And that's how the genocide begins. This also brings up an important part about the Indonesian case, which is usually individuals did not consider it genocide because the argument is it was politically targeted. Now, mm. my claim is that it is because there is an ethnic dimension to the violence. Speaking of this ethnic dimension, there are a lot of different groups that in your talk you mention in relationship to Indonesia. So I'm thinking you mentioned the Dayaks of West Kalimantan, the Achenese of Sumatra. Are these groups that become targeted by the violence, or are they groups that participate in the violence? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so complicated. Complicated. Uh, it looks like from the evidence that we have at this point that the violence is predominantly targeted against ethnic Chinese living mm. in Southeast Asia. But whether there was an initial sort of threat of the Achenese and Dayak populations in order to get uh, leaders from those populations to participate in, in the national sort of pro-nationalist, anti-communist mm. movement does seem likely. If not an explicit threat, at least an implied one. And so you do see Dayak leadership uh, participating in the forced removal of ethnic Chinese. And then there's, a, there's another sort of complicated angle to this is ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia aren't a single group the way mm. we normally think of them. How do you mean? So when I say Chinese in the U.S., what people are mostly thinking is majority population of China, Han Chinese, 
which is complicated even in the U.S. because most of the diaspora population in the U.S. is from the South and is Cantonese-speaking mm -hmm. uh, population. And actually, the majority uh, of Chinese are from other groups. They're Tiu-Tiu, they're Hakka, they're Hokkien, and a number of other groups as well. So this experience in Southeast Asia is also mm -hmm. creating a, a complicated, more broad Southeast Asian Chinese identity as well. And it's connected to this uh, so-called Cold War politics. Um, there's also anti-Chinese violence in Malaysia, which is a smaller scale, mm -hmm. uh, but basically similar justification. Must be Chinese, therefore communist, therefore uh, targeted for violence, right? Yeah. So that's part of the, the, yeah. the complexity there. Yeah. Well, let's listen then to Billy's talk on Indonesia and hear some more about the complexities that went into the genocidal violence that happened. Now, setting uh, Java and Bali aside for the moment, in each of these regions, there was a complex dynamic of ethnic relations that shaped the violence. For example, in the area of West Kalimantan, Dayak populations had been extremely pro-Indonesian nationalist since their alliance with the Japanese military during World War II, an alliance that emerged much out of mutual interest in anti-European colonial stances with Jiluk Rewood, becoming a key figure in the Dayak community as a Dayak revolutionary figure. The Dayak communities had shown some sympathy to a PKI or communist movement in a few key riverine areas. However, the anti-communist purges, when they came, Dayak militias joined PNI nationalist forces in the anti-communist violence. They forced up to 45,000 ethnic Chinese to leave rural areas and extrajudicially executed up to 5,000. On the island of Sumatra, the situation was quite different. Achenese, along with other Sumatrans, had split support between the PKI and the PNI during the 1950s. They said under Sukarno's nationalist platform in the 1950s, the PKI were considered part of the Indonesian nation. Those who had no desire to be called anti-nationalists in some parts of Sumatra were forced to essentially join PKI groups to be seen as nationalists. Uh, the PKI was part of the nationalist community. However, by the 1960s, uh, a script was flipping. The script was being flipped on the PKI explicitly. Now, local Muslim leaders had been referring to the communists as kafirs, those who would cover up the truth for decades. Uh, local Achenese military leadership, especially under Juarsa, drew upon religion as a motivator, therefore, for anti-communist violence. However, on the ground, reports suggest that local leadership had actually been confused. Muslim peasant farmers had heard the announcement of a supposed, quote, September 30th attempted communist coup d'etat, which aimed to take over the central government in Jakarta. And hearing the initial reports, they wanted to join the proverbial inevitable revolution. They wanted to join the promise of this class revolution. What they didn't realize was this, that the revolution did not exist. The details 
uh, of, let's say, this attempted coup remain relatively murky. Now, what is clear is that the central military in Java used the narrative as a means to indicate anti-communist purges, immediately beginning on the morning of October 1, 1965, on the island of Java. Now, just one week later, but more than 2,000 kilometers away in Aceh, the local PNI-affiliated military attempted to set the record straight. Orders were given for PKI members to report themselves to military headquarters. Otherwise, non-PKI members were supposed to help the military. So poor farmers that actually wanted to support the PKI rebellion at first simply switched to support the military over the course of a week, just as the winds appeared to shift, because they received orders to do so. And whom did they target? They targeted the Communists, the communist group, the counter-revolutionaires, the counter-revolutionaries, the Kafir, the Tidak Beragama, the, the non-believers, the Atis, the anti-Tuhan, uh, the atheists, and finally friends and associates of these individuals with waves of violence uh, moving outward as well as eventually targeting the broadly construed Chinese population a particularly identifiable religious group which had previously emerged in Indonesia were followers of, quote, Red Islam, after the teachings of Haji Muhammad Misbak, who understood that Islam and communism were readily identifiable in their aims. The helping of the poor through zakat, for example, was understood to be a, a means of the redistribution of wealth in agreement with the communist platform. So there are sources that suggest in Muslim-majority areas, such as Aceh and Java, that those individuals who were suspected of being red Muslims were targeted particularly harshly for torture, imprisonment, and execution, forced starvation, uh, forced labor, and other punishments in an initial wave of purges before the violence moved outward away from the Muslim community. It's notable the U.S. Embassy cable reports from the NSA archive release include a source from Indonesia's oldest Muslim organization, Muhammadima, that compares the killing of the PKI to the killing of the lowest order of infidel. That uh, shedding the blood of the PKI is comparable to shedding the blood of a chicken. Part of the reason I bring this up uh, for the particular quote of the supposed Muhammadiyah sources that shows uh, a critical detail that is not often discussed. The historical events of genocide in the case of Indonesia uh, are often uh, described as being uh, extreme, a massacre, mass waves of violence, but then uh, somehow not fitting the understanding of genocide under the UN's genocide conventions. Now, that's not actually the case when we consider the particular scale and the nature of violence, as well as the nature of violence in regions that I previously mentioned in Kalimantan, Java, Bali, and Aceh, where there was a distinct series of attacks broadly construed on the civilian Chinese population, motivated simply based on the assumption that ethnicity alone could link them to a broad base of communist support. For example, in, in Bali, in uh, Sinkaracha and Denpensar, all of the Chinese shops burned, right? Uh, the earlier case uh, of Chinese being expelled from the island of Borneo and the Chinese being broadly executed based on suspicions of communist support. 
And at the same time, this nature of this violence is so distinctly comparable to uh, the other case that I want to talk about, the Cambodian genocide. Uh, on the one hand, contrasting with the Cambodian genocide, because in the Cambodian genocide, the, the violence is perpetrated by communist forces, pro-communist forces. But on the other hand, because the sort of middling population which is targeted is roughly parallel. So you have uh, Chinese in the case of islands, Southeast Asia being sort of uh, a middle population that gets triple scapegoated. And this is comparable to the Cham Muslim population in the case of Cambodia. So in your second case study about genocide in Cambodia, you head to a different part of Southeast Asia. Tell us a little bit about what Cambodia is like during this moment of Khmer Rouge violence and kind of what's going on? What's going on in terms of Khmer Rouge violence? Mm -hmm. Most people measure from 1975 to 1979, mm. right? Um, but in this case, one of the really important features is that the violence starts long before 1975. Mm. And uh, for that reason, is it was initially viewed as a civil war. And so when does the violence start in Cambodia? Uh, colonial period? Post-colonial period? Independence, 1954, late 1950s, 1960s. The bombing of Cambodia in the late 1960s by the United States, which was widely described as illegal, an illegal bombing of Cambodia. Um, Cambodia was a, a neutral territory in terms of Southeast Asian politics, and therefore and there was not supposed to be any U.S. military involvement mm -hmm. in Cambodia. Um, U.S. air bases are predominantly in northeastern Thailand and what is now Vietnam, mostly in the, the southern and south-central region. Mm -hmm. The bases in Vietnam had also been used by the French and the Japanese in the past, and the bases in northeastern Thailand to an extent during World War II, but built up by the Americans. So what is going on in Cambodia is similar to Indonesia. There are essentially three parties, but they're different in, in some ways. So there is a right wing, for simplicity's sake, of Cambodian politics that is arguably nationalist, arguably pro-religious freedom, many sort of Catholics, uh, Buddhists figures, and also Muslim figures end up in the, in the right wing of politics. This is republicanist nationalism. Mm. There is a, a relatively centrist position, which is royalist, which makes Cambodia quite different yeah. <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of global politics. There's a loyal royalist contingent in Cambodian politics stretching up through the present. It's important because the king himself is connected to this South and Southeast Asian idea of the Chakravartin, the wheel-turning monarch. Mm -hmm. So the monarch themselves uh, brings the truth and then uh, upholds the Dharma, right, and sort of unifies the polity. And this is revived at different periods. The king, Nordom Sihanouk, in the 1950s puts a spin on that. And he writes a tract which translates into English called Our Buddhist Socialism. Oh. 
So, <laughs> so he has uh, Buddhist socialism, which is going to unite Cambodia in the broader context of non-aligned movement politics in the 1950s. There is also a strong left-wing socialists and then increasingly communists in Cambodian politics as well. Uh, but the communist contingent is very, very weak until the late 1960s. And all of the individuals from these different positions, they've gone to school together in French schools, mm. right? Uh, they had been uh, trained in the same military institutions. So they were essentially old buddies, but then they each get in involved in this violent civil conflict throughout the 1960s. So uh, what strengthens the Khmer Rouge position? What brings them to power? It's essentially, it's the one place where I'll mention another historian. Mm -hmm. um, ben Kiernan makes a very convincing argument that it's the U.S. bombing of, of the Eastern Zone that brings the Khmer Rouge to power. It allows them to recruit forces uh, much more rapidly, increases their support. So the increase of Cambodian communist positions is put in terms of oh, there's this broader communist movement for U.S. authorities. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the mainland Southeast Asia, connected to Vietnam, connected mm -hmm. to Laos, connected to China, connected to the Soviet Union, never mind the, so the Sino-Soviet split, that doesn't happen, right? This is a big unified communist movement. And so that is used to, to justify the support of a coup d'etat in 1970 that brings the right-wing military to power. This deepens the resolve of the communist position, it deepens the violence of the civil conflict, and then eventually results in the Khmer Rouge coming to power in 1975. There's also ethnic divisions that you really emphasized in addition to these political ones. Could you describe like what are these different ethnic groups in Cambodia? Yeah, so, Brief overlay, yeah, and then what does Buddhist socialism do to them? Because that's yeah. really important. Okay, <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, I, I spoke a little bit about Sukarno sort of creating his own uh, weaknesses. Right. Um, this happens for Sihanouk as well. So you have a number of different ethnic groups in Cambodia. The Khmer are the ethnic majority. There are also Austroasiatic indigenous groups and Austronesian indigenous groups. The Austronesian indigenous groups are related to other peoples in island Southeast Asia. The Austroasiatic groups are mostly related to peoples in the Annamite chain up through Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. Mm. Um, so those are the two groups. Mostly, there is also a division between upland and lowland minorities. And this is where uh, ethnic Chinese, uh, Teochew, predominantly Teochew Chinese in Cambodia, um, but also Hakka and Hokkien. Ethnic Chinese are, are a lowland minority. Uh, they mm -hmm. arrive in large numbers in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, there's also ethnic Vietnamese who arrive in large numbers in the 19th century. And then there's 
ethnic Malays and ethnic Choms. Ethnic Malays and ethnic Choms are Austronesian, so they're related to other island peoples. Mm -hmm. This also separates them from majority populations and many other ethnic groups by religion as well because they're Muslim, mm -hmm. 99 plus percent. Uh, the majority Khmer population is Buddhist. Mm -hmm. So where does Buddhist socialism come into all of this? Essentially, Buddhist socialism uh, attempts to nationalize all of these groups. So mm. all, the up, all the upland peoples are now uh, Khmer uplanders. The Khmer themselves are Khmer lowlanders. The Muslim, the Cham, and Malay, uh, they are now Khmer Islam. So Khmer is supposed to mean like Cambodian altogether. It's a merging of this ethnic and national identity. Mm. It doesn't work so well <laughs> because there are leaders who are opposed to that because they see it as pushing this assimilationist position. So especially in the Cham community, you have individual imams who are saying, we're not Khmer Islam, we're Cham Islam. And mm. that becomes a point of friction. So let's listen to a little bit more of Billy's talk as he explores what this ethnic genocide ends up looking like in Cambodia. For anyone who knows a bit about the country of Cambodia and the legacy of American intervention in Southeast Asia, the genocide committed by the Khmer Rouge regime between 1975 and 1979 is a prominent aspect of the narrative of regional history. The illegal American bombing of Cambodia in 1969 to 1970 was a critical factor that deepened local resistance to American military presence in Southeast Asia and indeed military support of the Cambodian government. The result of the bombing was a dramatic rise in the ability of the Khmer Rouge to attract new recruits. Khmer Rouge had been, up until that point, a ragtag force of Marxist-Leninist revolutionary-inspired guerrillas. The bombing resulted in the transformation of the Khmer Rouge into a substantial military force. A U.S.-approved coup d'etat took power over the weakening royalist state in 1970 with General Lan Nol as its head. The Khmer Republic, as it was called, however, was an incredibly weak state, now fighting with not just the remnants of royalist forces, but also with the emboldened Khmer Rouge in the eastern zone. As they increased in power, violence spread throughout the Khmer Republic, and then eventually the Khmer Rouge marched into the streets of Phnom Penh in 1975, turning the urban population out into the countryside. Now, many Cham communal leaders claimed, according to their own documents, as early as 1965, 10 years prior to the normal, uh, broadly construed citation for the beginning date of the genocide, they said in these documents that there was an impending genocide of their populations, targeting their languages, targeting their religions, targeting their day-to-day -day practices, their ethnic identity. These internal Cham documents also cite evidence that the Cham Muslims were being targeted on the basis of their religion by Khmer Rouge forces. And uh, there are documents that claim so in published essentially independently, but in French in the early 1970s, long before the Khmer Rouge ever came to power in 1975. So genocidal policies against Cham Muslims 
were regionally specific in Cambodia. It's important to note this. Uh, they began as early as 1970 with broadly Khmer Rouge moving through the countryside, burning mosques down, targeting imams, executing religious elites. Forced migrations of the southwest zone began as early as 1970. And they were standard policy between 1970 and 1975. Cham language was banned. The teaching of Katap or Quranic commentaries was banned. Qurans were collected and destroyed. A pork test was introduced. Those who would uh, break halal dietary laws uh, were allowed to continue to participate in communal actions. Those who were not were marked for execution. Uh, those who were marked for execution were forced to wear blue and white checkered scarves, marking them for execution by a type of, of clothing with a colored label. Policy quickly turned toward the systemic execution of haji, teachers with Malay titles, or twan, and hakim, Islamic intellectuals, who were pillars of the intellectual community. Up to 97% of hajis were killed, according to some estimates. The results of the genocide committed against the Cham population of Cambodia, wherein Cham accounted for 25%, or 400 to 500,000 deaths between 1975 and 1979, in an area where they represented only 10% of the general population. So, Billy, now that we've heard your sort of comparison of Indonesia and the violence that went on there, and then Cambodia and the violence that went on there. My question is, what's your sort of historical argument that you're making by comparing these two? It's a good question. I should have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so my big, picture, my big picture argument is very simply, there is an intentional forgetting involved in the Cambodian and Indonesian genocidal cases hmm. that revolves around the justification of authoritarian, authoritarian regimes in the past and justification of similar regimes in the present, or similar practices in the present. Uh, but my point is that by discussing these cases, teaching about them, learning about them, uh, ultimately, uh, I believe I mentioned this earlier, it's a democratizing process. Um, it allows not just, oh, there are two perspectives on this issue, but actually there's hundreds of thousands and millions of perspectives on these issues, and we should be bringing those to light to sort of move the discussions forward. So, Billy, we were talking on Facebook about <laughs> Cambodian refugees in the U.S. Oh, um, yeah. And so I wanted to ask how knowing about the more complex sort of genocidal dimensions that went on in Indonesia and Cambodia, or knowing the differing ways that the U.S. engaged in those, how do those things impact how we know and what we do with refugees, say, in the United States from um, Southeast Asia? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's a lot of unresolved issues there. So I, I really want to make the point that just because I'm highlighting 
the nature of ethnic violence against Chinese, Vietnamese, uh, Thais, Malays, Choms mm -hmm. in Cambodia, that doesn't mean that this isn't a national tragedy in any way, right? Uh, of course it is. The Cambodian genocide, by its very definition, is a national tragedy. For example, uh, up to 80% of Buddhist monks die. Wow. Uh, executed starvation, uh, uh, various, various ways, right? So in a Buddhist country, that's a tragedy. The Sangha that's itself huge. decays, right? And so this plays into Buddhist understandings of history about the decay of the Sangha and the need to revive the Sangha as well. Um, and I think initial awareness of those issues and U.S. involvement played into in the 1980s and 1990s, a more liberal approach, I'm using liberal in the classical sense here, a more liberal approach to immigration policy. The idea that there was a debt to Southeast Asian refugees and this debt needed to be repaid and there was an obligation to repay that debt through offering programs of uh, NGO support, communal support, education programs in the United States, resettlement, and, and these sort of affiliated programs. In the 2000s, that begins to change, mm. and that remains unresolved. There's a change in uh, the U.S. criminal code related to immigration policy, so now anybody who is in prison, essentially in prison for any violent crime ever in their past, mm -hmm. can be deported, right? Um, and so in the case that we were talking about mm -hmm. in the past, um, it, there's an important community known as Khmer Exiled Americans. And so a number of these individuals have essentially, they've been uh, in the past were born in refugee camps, so not born in Cambodia, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, moved to the United States. Uh, some of the individuals, not all, but it, it seems like from the cases that I know mm -hmm. intimately, some were involved in some sort of criminal activity in the past. And and sometimes it could be like 30 years ago, so not, <laughs> not, not a life of crime by no, any means. No, 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 no. And when I say the past, I mean the past all of it right mm -hmm. 30 years ago was one case that we were discussing um, another one that Kassal uh, Q is there's a documentary about Kassal Q uh, that is worth watching it's worth using and teaching it's worth just watching for enjoyment it's called Cambodian Sun he was involved in uh, he wasn't even participating in, in violence but he was at a shooting and he was a member of a gang in California, a member of a youth gang, but because he was a member of the group uh, under California's gang legislation, he uh, received initially a life in prison sentence um, and then was deported to a country that he'd never been in the 2000s after serving a long period of time in prison already um, mm -hmm. under these sort of very strict uh, California state-specific legal policies, right? But the way that the state law interacted with the, the federal law, to be very frank, it totally screwed him over, mm -hmm. right? And this is, this is just one case, right? Uh, and this is uh, an ongoing issue. 
that I think is directly connected to these longer, larger discussions of international justice, right? By its mm -hmm. very nature, immigration policy is connected to international justice mm -hmm. uh, of research and development there. Well, Billy, thank you for helping keep this kind of memory of these um, of these events, this political violence, um, and in fact, genocides alive for us uh, in our conversation today. Now, you can check out some sources related to today's topics at our website, transasiapod.wordpress.com, or you can find us on Twitter at transasiapod. Join with us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by UW-Madison's Department of History, and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Kat Randall. Thanks very much, and join us next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you.